0: this is Reverend John Ferret and welcome to the last lesson in the Feast of Sukkot as we are in the podcast series called The Fall Feasts of Adonai. So we're in episode four, the Feast of Sukkot. And in lesson three, we continue to see how the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths in Hebrew, the feast of Sukkot and actually it's not a feast remember if you've been listening to the other podcasts all the way from Rosh Hashanah these are moedim these are appointed times by God the appointed time of Sukkot in other words there's a time and a specific place and a specific purpose for this meeting between us and God the other thing is is that all of the feasts according to Leviticus chapter 23 starting right there in the first few verses It says these belong to God. They're his. They don't belong to Israel. They don't belong to the Jewish people. However, he brought it to his chosen people. Brought it to all of his chosen people, and even the Jewish rabbis, the great Jewish rabbis, would say that Torah, those first five books of the Bible, which contain all the elements of the appointed times of God, are for all nations. So more and more we're seeing we get a a clear backup for the rationale that the church should begin to do the feast of the lord and not just made up feasts only Christmas is a made up feast it's it's in the, in the church it's huge easter is the same thing it's a made up feast god never commanded for us to celebrate christmas or the birth of messiah god has never commanded us to celebrate easter which is really the celebration or, or the re of the resurrection there's no command for god by god for us to do that he's got his eight and we see that leviticus 23. so we're getting to see more and more of a strong argument that says wait a minute if these belong to god and we're grafted in to the olive tree of israel and we're joint heirs with israel we're not israel but we're joined heirs, how much more important is for us to join with them? To join with them and participate in the appointed feasts of the Lord. But again, we want to see Jesus in these feasts. So far we've seen how Sukkot relates to Jesus as the light of the world. So far we've seen how Sukkot relates to Jesus as the source of living water. And now as we finish off on taking a look how the Feast of Sukkot relates to Jesus, how is it related to the celebration for all nations? How does Jesus teach us that the Sukkot is intimately connected to Jesus' birth? Come, let's go see. It so happens that during the Feast of Sukkot, there were many, many, many animal sacrifices. And these animal sacrifices help us see the sixth shadow of Messiah over this feast. The sixth shadow that says the Feast of Sukkot stands alone on its own, in its own meaning, just as God has instructed in Leviticus 23 and in other places. But God also said in his own words in the temple courts that all scripture testifies of him. Jesus said this probably between 24 and 30 AD. And at that time, all they had was the Hebrew Scriptures that we call the Old Testament. And so, indeed, there's another purpose to see Jesus and to see how God wants to teach us, related to these feasts, about his ultimate redemption plan through the cross. So, again, in As we approach Shadow 6, we're talking about these sacrifices. Now, there is one in particular, and that is bulls were sacrificed each day. Now, you can go to Numbers 29, verses 12 through 40. Now, we're not going to read them. We'll just start out here and just do a quick review because there's something that I want to point out here about animal sacrifices, specifically related to the bulls. So in Numbers 29, starting in verse 12, then on the 15th day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. The 15th day, this is the first day of the seven-day appointed time of Sukkot. You shall do no laborious work, and you shall observe a feast to the Lord for seven days. You shall present a burnt offering, an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord. Thirteen bulls, two rams, fourteen male lambs, one year old, which are without defect, and their grain offering, fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for each of the 13 bulls, two-tenths for each of the two rams, and a tenth for each of the 14 lambs, and one male goat for a sin offering, besides the continual burnt offering. It's a grain offering and it's drink offering. So that's day one. 13 bulls were sacrificed. Then on the second day... 12 bulls, 12 bulls, two rams, 14 male lambs, one year old, etc. etc. Further on in Numbers 29, it says the third day, 11 bulls, the fourth day, 10 bulls, and so on and so on until the seventh day we get down to seven bulls. So we have a countdown starting on the first day 12, 13 bulls on day one, 12 on day two, 11 on three, 10 on four. Nine on five, eight on day six, and seven bulls on day seven. You add them up, and it's 70 bulls. Now, in the Bible, and especially in Judaism, especially of Jesus' day, this is a symbol for all nations. This is from Genesis 10. Because we read about the descendants of Noah. His son Shem had 26 descendants. Ham. Had 30 descendants and Yaphet had 14 descendants, or a total of 70, comprising all the 70 nations after the flood. And again, like I said in ancient Israel in Jesus' day, 70 always represented, no matter how many nations there are, okay, 70 just re- represents all Jewish nations, all people of all of those nations, all people. Of all of those tribes and all of those groups and it was said that Sukkot therefore is a time of great joy for all nations and for all peoples because of the 70 bulls that were actually sacrificed over the seven-day period now this seems to relate to the universal covenant that was made with Abraham you'll remember it this is in Genesis 12 Verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. Now before we kind of leave this verse, the one thing that I want to mention is if you access the JPS Torah Commentary, probably one of the best Jewish scholarly works on the Torah, the Jerusalem Publication Society Torah Commentary. And the scholar Nechum Sarna has commentary on this verse. Another source is Joseph Shulam from Netevia Ministries in Israel, the Way of the Lord Ministries uh, in Jerusalem. And he is a proven, uh, excellent Jewish scholar who's messianic, who believes that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. And in his book on the Jewish commentary, the Jewish roots of the book of Romans, Joseph Shulam comments about us being grafted in in those chapters in Romans in 9, 10, and 11. So now we have the JPS Torah commentary with commentary on Genesis 12, 1 through 3, by Nahum Sarna, and we also have Joseph Shulam, also a recognized Jewish scholar, a Messianic scholar, who's commenting on the book of Romans on grafted in. Now we put these two together, and these two scholars show that in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, where it says, and in you, I, Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed, that it's a very strange form of the verb will be blessed, because it could also mean will be grafted in. This is amazing. And there was a rabbi, uh, this is probably after paul's day who recognized this and who wrote about it and it's very interesting because this was shortly after paul's day and paul talked about the fact that we're grafted in paul is an expert in hebrew and he probably knew this very different very unique way that the verb will be blessed in genesis 12 1 through 3 is actually being used Because Paul talks about the fact that we, the families of the earth, the nations of the earth, there will be a day where we'll be grafted in. So this is just quite amazing. So during Sukkot, it's a time of great joy for all nations and for all peoples. Paul, I probably looked at that and he said, yeah, it's a time of great joy because we will be grafted in through the covenant that God made with Abraham. Already now, in lesson three, we saw Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is a light for all nations. Already we've seen that Jesus is the source of living water. And we come to John 3.16 here as we're studying the Feast of Sukkot. And what does God say? God so loved the whole world, which means he loves all nations and all peoples, that he gave his only son, so that we could live so we can choose jesus as lord and savior and accept the marvelous amazing gift of salvation through the cross this is good news and we remember his birth on the night of his birth in luke chapter 2 verses 8 through 11 we read in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night and an angel of the lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened but the angel of the lord said to them, now listen to this do not be afraid for behold i bring you good news all right here we go good news this is good news of great joy which will be for all the people you guys that's Sukkot talk Sukkot is a time of great joy for all nations. And the angel continues, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people for today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So the malach, the messenger of God, came, and he talked about the birth, the birth of Messiah. And for Jews, this is, like I said, it's the message of Sukkot god with us just like we started out in the first lesson of sukkot immanuel god is with us jewish people in Jesus' day would remember we're going to dwell in booths we're going to remember those times when we dwell in our tents with god who dwelt in his tent and we could definitely say that god was with us immanuel and how immanuel got with us that hebrew phrase is associated with jesus this is just amazing. This is this is Sukkot talk. Definitely this is a shadow. The shadow of Jesus over the Feast of Sukkot. A shadow that comes to us. Just amazing. So let's take a look at the last shadow. Now there could be more. I'm not trying to say that my series on the Feast of Sukkot is the be all and end all. It's not. This is God's Word. It's deeper than deep and wider than wide and higher than high. And I'm just trying to give a perspective on the fact that when we take a look at these feasts, they testify of Yeshua HaMashiach, Yeshua Adonai, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Lord, Jesus our God. So let's consider a seventh shadow. Now I want to return back... To Luke chapter 2 starting in verse 8 and again the angel is talking to the shepherds and saying do not be afraid for behold I bring you good news again that's gospel of great joy again here we have great joy and indeed the Feast of Sukkot is the season of joy for Israel as we learn from the Jewish sources, but the the malach, the messenger says, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news, gospel, of great joy, which will be for all the people. Now, when you take a look at the Greek word that's used here for people, remember, it says all the people. It's a specific noun when you go to Thayer's Greek lexicon. And so, therefore, in Thayer's Greek lexicon, it's related to the Hebrew word am. Now, that's exactly what the angel is doing now. He's talking to these Jewish shepherds, not in Greek, but in Hebrew. So, therefore, we go to the Hebrew word am, and that means people in a general setting. In other words, people of a tribe, people of a nation, people of a group. So, it really is saying in here, in Hebrew, all people of a tribe all people of a nation all people of a group the implication is for the idea of all nations and all peoples all people people in general whether there be uh, whatever tribe they are whatever nation they are and the angel goes on for today in the city of david there has been born for you a savior who was christ the lord This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth shalom among men with whom he is pleased. And so again, men of his favor, those men whom he's pleased. When you go to the Hebrew, it means the chosen ones of the Lord and on earth peace, shalom among those who are the chosen ones of the Lord. And remember Jesus' words. You did not choose me, but I chose you, the chosen ones of the Lord. Wait a minute. (laughs) This is the Christmas story. And now we have to ask the question, is it possible that he came to dwell among us in his sukkah, in his body, in the Feast of Sukkot? Was he born at this time? We saw already connections between what we would say, the Christmas story as in Sukkot. Are there others? Let us connect some dots and see where it might take us. First of all, when we read about the Christmas story, the shepherds were out with their sheep. And it's nighttime, so more than likely they're probably out in the fields more than likely in a cave or some enclosure in a sheepfold that's what shepherds do now this can't be wintered because it must be warm they're out with the sheep probably in agri- uh, agricultural fields we don't know for sure but it could be if they're out in the fields because that's what it says there's a problem and that is starting in passover you have grain you have barley and you have wheat all the way through june because the harvest is beginning so you're not going to have sheep in agricultural fields until after the wheat harvest is done which has got to be sometime july or august so we're coming into the fall season you're not going to have sheep in the fields first of all during the rainy season during the winter months, which is November through about March. And once it starts drying up, you're not going to have sheep in the fields even around Passover because you have the barley growing. And sheep will just massacre a field with barley or wheat. So when we take a look at the geography, if these are agricultural fields, this is probably September again, around the Feast of Sukkot. Now, there's one famous um, Jewish Messianic scholar that is very, very well-known, and it's Jonathan Kahn, and I just love the guy, and I love reading about his views and comments and so on. Jonathan Kahn says that he thinks his view is that Jesus was possibly born at the Passover season, because that's lambing season. The implication is, all baby lambs are born in the spring. Now, what's interesting, when you actually study this, the answer is no. Now, in the United States, yes, lambing season is in the spring, but not in Israel. They're born all year. I happened to be in Wadi Rum, in the nation of Jordan, and I was there in June and baby lambs had been born and it was interesting because Muhammad, who was our Muslim Shepherd was talking about the mothers that were part of his flock that were forced to leave their babies that were just born in June not March not April I mean this is the Middle East and he said he has to force the mothers to come and they cry out, They're, they don't like it, but they've got to eat, they've got to feed themselves, otherwise they will not have sufficient milk for their babies when they come back. So he said, it's a hard thing to do, but that's what they have to do. But the key was lambing season. Lambs were born in June. And I happened to ask Muhammad. I said, "Do are lambs born all year? And he says, of course they are. There's no just lambing season in the Middle East fascinating. And I learned this from a Muslim shepherd. So I will disagree uh, in kindness with Rabbi Jonathan Kahn, bless his heart, um, that indeed you can't use that for a reason to say that Jesus possibly was born at Passover. But again, the angels are saying, this is a time for great joy for all nations or all people, people who are part of a tribe or a nation. This is Sukkot talk. And Yeshua, and what we've seen, he is the source of living water. And during the Feast of Sukkot, we're talking about willow trees that are used part of the celebration, and willow trees grow close to sources of living water. And that willow tree that's set up next to the altar during the water celebration each day for seven days, and water and wine are poured out on the altar, almost like a symbol a picture of blood and water that came out of yeshua's side as he was on the willow tree as he was on the cross or yeshua camping out with us he just didn't come to dwell with us remember in the greek he came out to dwell with us in his human body in his sukkah a temporary dwelling place paul teaches of this I mentioned some of the verses in previous lessons. Paul talks about our human body is a tent, a sukkah, a tabernacle. That's all it is. And Yeshua was resurrected with a glorified body, a resurrected body. And we look forward to the same thing, that our human body right now is just a tent, a sukkah. So Yeshua came out to, 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 to dwell with us, to camp out with us in his human body, which was a temporary dwelling place, a sukkah. We think about Joseph and Mary. They traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem, and just as a comment, she probably didn't ride a donkey. That's not even biblical. It's not even the Bible. So I won't go into a discussion uh, about this fact that Mary probably didn't uh, ride a donkey. Um, Suffice it to say that uh, we could... Bring that up maybe in another pod- podcast. But anyway, more than likely, also, they did not travel alone because travel in Jesus' day, they normally traveled in groups because of the danger on the roads, in those lonely roads from Nazareth to Bethlehem, and especially when they had to go up the road from Jericho up to Jerusalem, that 12 mile road, which was called the ascent of blood, only for the simple reason that so many people were robbed and killed on that road. So many people just traveled in groups, especially at a time of the feast. And it could very well be that Joseph and Mary were traveling at the time to the Jerusalem area on Passover or Shavuot that we call Pentecost or Sukkot. But again, the geography implies that this is probably the fall. Traveling in November through February in Israel is is almost impossible, especially in those days. It's very dangerous, especially due to monthslides and wadi flash floods and and the heavy rains uh, during that time all over Israel. Now Joseph, he returns to his father's house. It seems like he had no intention of returning to Nazareth. Now, it says there was no room for them in the inn. And this is not a holiday inn. This is not Motel 6. The Greek word there is kataluma. Now, this is a Greek word that's used to describe a guest chamber in the homes in Israel at that time, in the four-room homes. This is proven by archaeology. We can go to 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, and you'll remember the Shunammite woman, who had a great friendship with Elisha, the great prophet of those days, and she told her husband to build a guest room. Now, when you take a look at the Septuagint version of the Hebrew Bible, the word that's used there is guest room, kataluma. So again, there was no room in the there was no room in the guest room at Joseph's father's house. So it's probably the fact that they dwelt down in the lower level where there was a manger. A manger is obviously for feeding animals or for wadding animals made out of stone, and they they would have it in the lower level of the house. It would also be in sheep caves, in sheep caves. So this was probably a time of a great gathering in Jerusalem, a feast. It implies, because there was no room in the kataluma, in the guest room, that probably the whole family was home. Now Jerusalem, when we take a look at Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, or Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, or Joel chapter 2, verse 1, and other places, Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, was considered the mountain of God. Now, this is interesting. Messiah is born in Bethlehem, and Bethlehem is close to the mountain of God. It's in the vicinity. Messiah, Christ, is born in a temporary shelter, a sukkah, his body. Later, obviously, we know he has a new resurrected body. A number of scholars at the Associates of Biblical Research talk about the fact that based upon the culture that Jesus was probably born in the lower level of a four-room house or maybe even under the house. Many of the homes in Bethlehem would actually have, they'd be built on top of a cave and the cave would be used like a basement where their donkey would be stored, a few key lambs, perhaps mothers who were giving birth, maybe their ox, not all their animals, just a few, and they would have a manger there, a place, obviously, for watering the animals, a place for feeding the animals, a stone trough. It agrees with the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem that you can visit today. It was not a cave, and again, archaeologists, based upon understanding the culture, are probably saying that cave... At the Church of the Nativity, if it is the cave, probably was under a house because they're right in the middle of the town. And like I said, the manger are found in shepherds' caves or in these lower levels of the four-room house that Jewish people normally used in Israel. Now, Jesus is God, he's, and he's got a human body. It's his temporary dwelling place. And in John chapter 1, verse 14, your Bibles will probably say that he came to dwell among us. But the Greek word is skeno, which means to camp out, a tent, a temporary dwelling place, a tabernacle. That reminds us of Sukkot again. He dwelt with us. And just as God dwelt with his people and fed them heavenly bread, we consider the following. Jesus is born in Beit Lechem, the house of bread. Beit Lechem. We already read in John chapter 6 that he's the bread from heaven. This reminds us of manna. As God dwelt with his people in the Sinai, and he promised them bread from heaven, which they called manna, which is Hebrew for the phrase, what is it? The bread from heaven. And here Yeshua says, I am the bread for heaven, and he is the word. He is the word, and we already know. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, God is talking to Moses to tell the people this. God humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord now what's really interesting is this it's an ancient Jewish custom and this is from the Encyclopedia of Jewish Symbols by Ellen Frankel that the willow branches left over from the harvest rites of Sukkot. We now looked about the willow branches in Lesson 3, that these willow branches that were left over were saved to start the fires to bake, the, to bake matzah, unleavened bread, for Passover. And all of a sudden we have a link between Sukkot and Passover. And the reason why I bring this up We come back to the feeding trough that is his bed, the manger. Who comes to the feeding trough but sheep and lambs? Jesus is our good shepherd and we are part of his flock. We are his sheep. We are his lambs. And at his birth, the picture is we come to the manger to be fed, And the night before he died at Passover he said, eat my body and drink my blood. And all of a sudden we have this association of Sukkot with the birth of Messiah. The connection between Sukkot and Passover. Your mind just swirls with the amazing aspects of how God is putting this together. Does Sukkot testify of Jesus? Oh, yes. Was Jesus born during the Feast of Sukkot? It's a yes and no. Perhaps Rabbi Jonathan Kahn is right. Maybe Jesus was born at Passover. It's my view that I think he was born in the fall at the Feast of Sukkot. But both of us, we cannot say definitely one way or another. We have suggestions from archeology. span We have suggestions from geography, but one thing we have to say, the Feast of Sukkot, especially with the practices in Jesus's day, not the way it's done today, bless the Jewish, religious Jewish people and the Feast of Sukkot today, and the way they look at it, the meaning for today. We've got to go back and put the Feast of Sukkot in its historical perspective. What was going on in Jesus's day? We want to see how the Feast of Sukkot testifies of Jesus. And indeed, we have looked at seven, seven amazing shadows of Jesus over the Feast of Sukkot. So is it possible that he was born during the Feast of Sukkot? Well, there's some interesting arguments that say it's, it's probable. Like the shepherds in the fields and the lambing season is... Only in the spring, that's not true. It's lambing season is all year. Archaeology and history and geography contribute to the fact that it is a possibility that Jesus was born during the Feast of Sukkot. Jesus came to camp out to dwell with us at his tent on his birth. Could it be then during the Feast of Sukkot? We're dwelling in the Sukkot, and we remember that God was dwelling in his Sukkah? This blows me away. This is not some feeling. This is not some rabbinic midrash made up. No, it's real history. It's real archaeology. It's just like God to give us, not midrash. Not Jewish rabbinical speculation, but truth. So we end off our series on the fall feasts and we remember Sinai, the mountain of God. And the Feast of Sukkot where the Jewish people, the Hebrews actually, all the tribes, were told to dwell dwell in booths after Sinai so that they would remember dwelling in the tents with God who dwelt in his tent and they would remember Emmanuel that God was with us they would remember the exodus where they were fed fed bread from heaven all of this related to the mountain of the Lord but then we remember Jesus who's the who is the shadow of over Sukkot and we talk about The Hebrew phrase, Emmanuel, is associated with Jesus Jesus at his birth. God with us. God with us and us with him. And in John chapter 6, we're fed by the bread from heaven. And we see the feeding trough, his manger, because Jesus is the bread from heaven. His body, just as he said as his last supper, The unleavened bread is a picture of the word of God. Yes, the written word of God, and now the living word of God. And all of this happening at the mountain of the Lord in Jerusalem. Sukkot, the harvest is over, represents the end. The Torah reading schedule is over. The Jewish people read the Torah, the five books, over 52 weeks of a year. And the Torah reading schedule ends at the Feast of Sukkot. The Sukkot represents the end, but it's also representing the beginning. A new agricultural season is starting. There's prayers for living water and the rain, the early rains to start, because they realize that it's God's blessing for a good harvest starting in Passover. But it's also the start of a new reading season. The written word starts again. And ends the beginning and the end of the written word at the Feast of Sukkot and we have Jesus he's the Living Word he begins his birth is it possible at the Feast of Sukkot at the mountain of God not exactly at the foot of the mountain but about five miles away and Jesus on Sukkot we remember that the living word, Jesus, was sacrificed and died. His dwelling in his sukkah ends at the mountain of God of Jerusalem. But through his death and his new resurrected body, in him is the great good news that comes through the cross. That we indeed will delight ourselves in living water that pours out of us from our soul. Sukkot It's a season of our joy. Truly a time to sing Hava Nagila. Hava Nagila, Hava Nagila, Hava Nagila Nagila, Ve Nismecha. Let us rejoice, let us rejoice, let us rejoice and be glad. Hava Neranina. Hava neranina Hava neranina ve nismecha. Let us sing let us sing let us sing and be glad Uru Uru akim Uru akim belev semech. Awaken awaken people all peoples Awaken peoples with a cheerful heart Sukkot the season of our joy Shalom.